0: Hi, I'm Eric Voss and Game of Thrones season 8 episode 1 hits the heroes with uncomfortable realizations like how much it sucks to have your pets stare at you while you have sex, and he thinks we're fighting, or like related or something. In these in-depth breakdowns I dive into interesting parallels, hidden meanings, darker theories, the kind of hot takes to get you to peek over that cubicle wall and say I figured out what the Night King meant by that human meat spiral. Um this is an open plan office and HR put you in a cubicle for a reason so please stop talking to me. Let's dive into what you might have missed this episode. Spoiler warning if you haven't seen the episode yet, and let's start with this new opening title sequence. Last season ended with the geography of Westeros as we knew it changing the most dramatically since the Children of the Forest sunk the land bridge between the continents thousands of years ago. Yep, that's the kind of nerd shit we're gonna get into a lot in these breakdowns. So show producers must have felt like map makers in 1991 after the Berlin Wall fell. Huh, we should probably update this. The wall is now collapsed at Eastwatch, and the ground flips over blue like a game board to signify the White Walker's progress. And now we see the interior of a lot of locations, including the Great Hall and the crypts of Winterfell showing the statue of Lyanna Stark that will play a big role later on this episode, and the Red Keep and the dungeons beneath showing Kyburn's scorpion weapon aimed at dragon skulls, all interspersed with these new tableaus of key events like the Red Wedding, and the birth of Daenerys' dragons. I'm actually gonna make a whole other video breaking down these new titles and what they could mean for this final season, so keep an eye out for it. But the opening shots of this Episode introduced us to this unnamed northern boy, witnessing the arrival of Daenerys' army through the streets of Wintertown, the neighboring village just outside Winterfell. Someone in the crowd steps aside to give him room, and that someone is Arya Stark. She smiles because this boy is the first of many callbacks to the first episode of the series all the way back in 2011. Which of course showed the arrival of King Robert Baratheon. Arya was once just like this young kid, super pumped to see this new arriving monarch and all the weirdos who get dragged along. In addition to mirroring Arya as a face in the crowd, the boy also mirrors Bran as well. Climbing to the top of a tree for a better look, the way Bran climbed to the top of the tower of Winterfell to see Robert and his army. Back in that scene, Bran said the interesting line, I saw the king! A line that would foreshadow Bran in this moment seeing a different king marching toward Winterfell. Different king being the Night King. Depicting this opening arrival once again through the eyes of children reminds us who the real victims are of this coming conflict. The youth. Those who should have their whole lives in front of them. Lives that should last longer than five more episodes. But there's an even more subtle callback with the music of this scene. This march is composer Ramin Djawadi's same score for the arrival of Robert Robert Baratheon. But you'll notice that Jawadi made a little adjustment to the Baratheon march theme. <laughs> mixes in those two notes of an upright bass, which is from the Daenerys theme. You may remember it scoring the moment Daenerys acquired this unsullied army back in Astapor. So Dany's music, underscoring Robert's music, reflects her victory over him here. A callback to Robert and the Winterfell Crips from that first episode, who swore death to the surviving Targaryens, specifically Dany. It's done. The Targaryens are gone. Not all of them. Which well, is followed by a jump cut to Danny. Then Varys calls out Tyrion Lannister on all of his eunuch jokes, and Tyrion's response actually gets kind of a rim shot from the horse behind them. Because I have balls, and you don't. <laughs> At first I thought this was Grey Worm's horse, and he'd be like, Yeah, I feel that! That being nothing, I don't feel anything on my back. But actually, it's uh, the horse of one of the Dothraki blood riders. As they all face the judgmental scowls of the northern people, Jon reminds Daenerys that they don't trust outsiders. A few of them are older, with even older, grumpier scowls than the rest. Probably old enough to remember Daenerys' father, the Mad King Aerys II, who executed Ned Stark's father, Rickard Stark, and his brother, Brandon Stark. They may also be aware of the ancient history of Torrin Stark, the king who knelt, who surrendered the north to Aegon the Conqueror. So, Daenerys is marching into a millennia-old chorus of, get off my lawn. Inside the walls of Winterfell, Jon reunites with Bran, saying he's a man now. And Bran responds, almost. As in, this was almost not awkward. Bran is suggesting that he's not fully human anymore. That, like the preceding Three-Eyed Raven, his mind and body are becoming linked with the roots of the magical weirwood trees that span Westeros and give him his visions. Jon hugs Sansa, asking, where's Arya? She says, lurking somewhere. This is another callback to the first episode where Catelyn asks Sansa the same question. Where's Arya? Sansa, where's your sister? Arya is missing again here for the same reason. She prefers to be a face in the crowd. The many faces God incarnate, and she wants to be the one who can get the first look as opposed to lining up with everyone else and being seen. John introduces Daenerys as Queen Daenerys of House Targaryen, and immediately that earns him a bitter snarl from the young Lyanna Mormont, and from young Ned Umber a little huh? Again, the youth response is key here, because they see the world in the simplest terms, and this world is really theirs to inherit. And Sansa greets Daenerys with a specific phrase, Winterfell is yours, your grace. And that's exactly how Ned greeted Robert in the first episode. Nine years, why haven't I seen you? Where the hell have you been? God in the North for you, your grace, Winterfell is yours. Sansa shows that she has learned the art of diplomacy, despite harboring mistrust of this foreign queen, which she later reveals with some side eye, These are all political tactics that she learned from Peter Baelish. Fight every battle, everywhere, always, in your mind. Everyone is your enemy, everyone is your friend. Live that way and nothing will surprise you. Now back in the parallel scene of the first episode, every Stark that King Robert touched later died. Ned, Catelyn, Rob, and Rickon. The characters who avoided Robert's death touch survived. Sansa, Arya, Bran, and Jon. It's possible that Daenerys could also be a sign of doom, but she doesn't get to touch anyone because Bran puts a stop to these pleasantries. Ain't nobody got time for this. So in the meeting hall, Sansa singles out young Ned Umber, who leans over nervously like the kid in class who doesn't want to get called on. Remember back in the season seven premiere, Jon forgave this boy, along with the head of house Karstark, Alice, who actually shows up later this episode, Ned Umber stumbles over how to address Sansa and John and Danny. We need more horses and wagons, if it please, my lady, and my lord, and my queen. Sorry. Next time, kid, just shout, Where are my wagons? Ned, along with Liana Mormont, are reminders that children are running these major northern houses. And in this scene, the whole room speaks through the mouths of these two babes confusion over John's relationship with Danny, and a little pissed off that their king of the North bent the knee. Tyrion tries to reassure everyone, but he's met with a glare from Lord Jan Royce, who later gave him a big, yeah, no thanks when Tyrion approached him and Sansa. His hatred of Tyrion goes all the way back to see Season one. Remember when Tyrion insulted Lady Arryn and the entire Vale, including Lord Royce, by buying his way out of a trial by combat by using Braun. As Tyrion explains the dilemma, he's framed with Sansa over one shoulder and Daenerys over the other, implying his dual loyalties. Now the show has actually used a similar angels on the shoulders framing before with Ned Stark in the first episode. Catelyn framed behind one shoulder, Maester Luwin framed behind the other. Again, the man in the middle here is torn between his affections and his duties. And Sansa always a pragmatist reminds us that this new army and dragons gotta eat. But do dragons eat anyway? And then the camera does a subtle focus shift to Daenerys in the background, who responds, whatever they want. And Then Danny turns to meet Sansa's eyeline. The words themselves are simple, but the focus pull and the gesture by Daenerys underline this response as a threat. My dragons could just eat you, lady. After this, Tyrion catches up with Sansa, reminding each other the last time they saw each other at Joffrey's wedding slash murder, or as it's called in Westeros, just a wedding. Sansa jokes it had its moments, but Tyrion's joyless reaction to this reminds us that while Joffrey's death was kind of a victorious escape for Sansa, for Tyrion it led to the darkest moments of his life. Sansa scoffs at Tyrion for trusting Cersei to help them, and Tyrion catches Bran creepily staring up at him from the courtyard below, perhaps asking him to design some wheelchair ramps to go along with that special saddle he made for him. Perhaps Bran has seen some greater role for Tyrion than these mere political squabbles. Moving on to the Winterfell Godswood, where where Arya finally reunites with Jon saying, You used to be Tala. Another parallel to Robert's reunion with Ned and the pilot, you've got that. In both cases, this teasing leads to a loving hug. Aw, but yeah, we're not exactly on the same page. You can also see this scene as parallel to the moment that Catlin met with Ned in the same location in the first episode, where in both of these scenes, the man had his Valyrian steel sword unsheathed. John asks how Arya snuck up on him, and Arya asks how he survived a knife through the heart, to which he says, yeah, way to answer my question with a question, smartass. Also, I didn't. Both characters remarking on the other's dramatic change. Arya has transitioned from a heavy-footed stomper that she was in season one to an agile water dancer, and Jon has resurrected, which honestly isn't talked about enough by these characters. Like Ned and Robert, this reunion is less formal than it is teasing and friendly, kind of like bro-y warriors, down to the fact that they compare their sword length. Jon gave Arya her sword needle in season one, and now he asks her, have you used it? She says, once or twice. Yeah, more like Four or five times, Arya. She used it on a stable boy in season one, Polliver and Rorge in season four, and of course on the Waif in season six. But Arya's reaction to Jon's Valyrian steel sword, Longclaw, is more interesting to me. She says it's too heavy for me. It's an odd thing to say because Valyrian steel is famously lighter in weight than ordinary steel. I think there's more symbolic weight to Arya's words here. She could be suggesting that the weight of Jon's responsibility is too heavy for her, and rather than joining him in this confrontation with the Night King directly. Maybe she has a different mission on her mind. More on that later. But moving on to King's Landing, where Cersei Lannister learns from Kyburn that the White Walkers have broken through the wall and responds perfectly in character. Mm, good. This smugness is exactly how Cersei reacted to the last horrific catastrophe, the explosion of the Sept of Baelor by wildfire. Cersei is pure schadenfreude, delighting in others' misfortune, and we should definitely fear what other atrocities she might let transpire. Perhaps burning down the rest of King's Landing with Wildfire Wildfire as well, or maybe joining forces with the Night King. Euron Greyjoy's Iron Fleet arrives in the Blackwater Bay, carrying the Golden Company, led by Captain Strickland. Euron holds captive his niece, Yara Greyjoy, talking to her because his crew is composed of mutes. Remember when Euron sacked Theon and Yara's group in Season 7, his men cut out the tongues of the ones they defeated. This is a detail from the books. Euron Greyjoy is an insanely brutal pirate who detongues his crew to keep them from mutinying against him. Thus, his ship's name the Silence. Considering all the torture Euron famously puts on his captives, it's actually pretty surprising Yara isn't in worse shape than she is. But it's also worth noting that cutting out their tongues also prevents his crew from reporting an attack, which Theon does later this episode, so this reminder of his muted crew also reminds us of his vulnerability. In the Red Keep, Cersei receives the biggest disappointment of this episode, that the Golden Company, best known for having their awesome war elephants, left them at home? She says that's Disappointing, I was told the Golden Company had elephants. Yeah, we were all told there would be elephants. In the words of Bart Simpson, where's my elephant? I'm just gonna yell it until there's an elephant on the show. Seriously, you couldn't cut out like 30 seconds of that How to Train Your Dragon flight montage and giving us one damn elephant? Now just some background here on the Golden Company. The Golden Company is an army of sellswords from Essos who were founded by House Blackfire, a line of Targaryen bastards who tried to seize the Iron Throne in the Blackfire rebellions. So maybe leaving the elephants behind suggests some kind of secret place Plan to betray Cersei. Maybe support a Targaryen retaking the throne. Then we catch up with Braun rolling in the sheets with some hopefully well-paid women. This is the first time in a long time that we've had a non-romantic nude scene on the show. Last one I can remember is season five with the Sand Snakes and Braun always seems to be around for these. So this porny scene seems like another parallel to the opening episode. Remember the scene with Roz and Tyrion. These women are gossiping about the death and disfigurement of Lannister soldiers, referring to last season's deadly Battle of Blackwater Rush in episode 4 when many of them were cooked in their armor by Drogon. And Bronn reminds him of his badassery in that battle, keeping the dragon from doing even more damage, operating that big scorpion weapon. Now one of the soldiers they mentioned should sound pretty familiar to you. That boy Eddie, the ginger, yeah that's him, came back with his face burnt right off. He's got no eyelids now. So yeah, a Lannister soldier, a ginger named Eddie, Folks, they're talking about Ed Sheeran. Remember his character last season singing a song about how a woman's hands are warm? Hopefully there's still some warm hands out there for a never-blinking Ed Sheeran. Kyburn passes on an assignment to Bronn from Cersei to kill both her brothers, Tyrion and Jaime, using a familiar crossbow. She has a keen sense of poetic justice. This crossbow is the same one that Tyrion used to murder their father, Tywin Lannister, back in season four. And Cersei deciding to bring it back here echoes her poetic justice on the Sand Snakes, murdering one of them with a poison kiss. Revenge for them killing her daughter, Masella, with a poison kiss. Now, why does Cersei let Euron have sex with her? Well, it could just be that she's looking for a release now that Jaime's no longer in her life, or perhaps she's looking for a powerful figure whom she can say is the father of her unborn child and secure her line of succession, and thus her own power. Then again, Cersei is drinking wine in this scene. Something she knows pregnant women shouldn't really do, since remember, she actually ripped wine from Tyrion when she told him she was pregnant last season. Here, Euron rubs her abdomen and says, I'm going to put a prince in your belly. Yeah, real charmer. You would think Cersei would be showing by now. Euron had enough time to go to Essos and back. And if she really was pregnant, don't you think Euron would have felt kind of a bump there? So, I think what many of us have been speculating is possible that Cersei was lying about her pregnancy. And maybe here she's using sex to lure Euron into a trap. Maybe a trap that ends with the mountain ripping his balls off to pay off his joke about having balls earlier. But whatever her exact plan is, I don't think she wants to end up with anyone. As she suggested to Euron in this scene Now I want to be alone. While Euron's distracted, Theon rescues Yara and they escape. As Yara heads back to the Iron. Islands and Theon to Winterfell, they repeat the chant of the Drowned God, What is dead may never die, but kill the bastards anyway. The Ironborn worship the Drowned God and when they baptize each other they drown people in seawater, forcing the baptized to cough up the water and return harder and stronger, they believe. And by Yara adding this last line, but kill the bastards anyway, she's linking their religious belief with the magic of the White Walkers, who have demonstrated an actual ability to resurrect the dead. And she's warning Theon that the threat they're facing is a god Oddly one to them. Back in Winterfell, the three wise men, Tyrion, Varys, and Ser Davos Seaworth, discuss the northern power struggle. Davos tells Tyrion, you want their loyalty, you have to earn it. You may remember earlier, Cersei told Euron a similar thing about earning things. You want a whore, buy one. You want a queen, earn her. Also, of course, Tyrion and Euron both bragged about having balls this episode, and it's just interesting to me that they're being painted with a similar brush. Both are outsiders trying to woo prizes. Euron's prize is Cersei, Tyrion's prize. I guess he's trying to woo that silver fox Lord Royce. It'll just be interesting to see what cost these two have to pay to get the respect that they seek. Now these three wise men stare at Jon and Danny and start shipping them in their imaginations. They do make a handsome couple. This is another parallel to the first episode. Remember when Cersei and Catelyn watched their young lovers from a distance, Sansa and Joffrey, matchmaking them into the future king and queen. Considering how that worked out, maybe this parallel paints Jon and Daenerys as a similarly doomed couple actually echoes this pessimism with an interesting observation. Respect is how the youth keep their distance so that we don't remind them of an unpleasant truth that nothing lasts. Maybe Varys is saying that this love between Jon and Daenerys won't last. Or maybe he's just still salty over Melisandre, warning him that he would die on Westeros last season. Definitely the kind of thing that'll put you in a bad mood for a while. Jon and Daenerys finally get some alone time, checking in on the dragons Drogon and Rhaegal, whose appetites have dwindled down to only 18 goats and 11 sheep, yet when I eat that much, people call me a fatso, or a werewolf. Daenerys blames the fact that the dragons don't like it in the north. This could be a nod to Westerosi history. When the Targaryen queen Alysanne visited Winterfell on Dragonback, but her dragons strangely refused to fly north of the Wall. Daenerys' dragons have already flown north of the Wall, remember to save John and the Others last season, but this could imply that the magic of the White Walkers weakens the effectiveness of the dragons here in the North. Now there's even more significance to this moment, but this whole backstory about the Targaryen ancestors was something that I learned from some really, really interesting Game of Thrones material, which I discovered through Audible. Thank you to Audible for sponsoring this video. Audible has an insane selection of audiobooks, including George R. R. Martin's entire A Song of Ice and Fire series. It's how I review the books to prep for this final season, but also related titles like The World of Ice and Fire, The Untold History of Westeros, and The Game of Thrones, which goes into the past of all these characters and all these locations, containing potentially some huge clues for how this series could end. You can listen to Audible while commuting, cooking, cleaning, in the waiting room, at the gym. What's gym? Yeah, I'm just kidding. I know. I gotta hit the gym to shut up all you cyber bullies. But you know what I'm gonna to do while I'm blasting those glutes? I'm gonna smash that Audible app button and listen to my favorite audiobooks. You can start listening with a 30 day Audible trial, and your first audiobook plus two Audible originals are free. Just go to audible.com slash rockstars. Again, audible.com slash rockstars, A U D I B L E dot com slash R O C K S T A R S. Or text the word rockstars to 500 500. All right, back to John with Daenerys and her dragons. In this scene, John finally mounts a dragon, becoming the dragon rider we've all been waiting him to become. And remember, this is something Rhaegal only allows him to do because Jon has Targaryen blood, something he realizes at the end of this episode. And this is especially significant because Rhaegal was named after Jon's biological father, Daenerys' brother, Rhaegar Targaryen. Jon leads Daenerys to this waterfall, and really everything about this scene suggests that this is one last moment of happiness for these two doomed lovers. Really just because no one on Game of Thrones gets to be too happy for too long. Also, it might be because this kind of feels like an echo of Jon's past relationship with Egret In Season 3, brought Jon to another northern waterhole, and we know how that relationship ended. That's right, Ollie blocked. As Jon keeps his queen warm, so warm, the dragons keep staring. Maybe the dragons are feeling awkward to see their mom with this new guy. He'll never be our daddy! Or maybe they know that these two are actually related and that it'll never work. Or who knows, maybe that makes it hotter for the dragons. Now it's also possible that since Drogon was named after Daenerys' ex-husband called Drogo, what we're seeing here is Drogo's jealous spirit haunting the new boyfriend. Another theory is that this stare could be linked with other creepy stares this episode, the stairs from Bran Stark. Perhaps he has warged into the mind of the dragon, and this would be another parallel with the first episode in which Bran is once again witnessing a queen engaging in an incest. Okay, down in the forges of Winterfell, Gendry forges these dragon glass arrowheads, and despite how hot it must be beside those furnaces, when he exhales, his breath is still visible. It's just an interesting detail to establish how freaking cold this winter must have gotten. The hound shows up, picking up a battle axe with a dragon glass blade, he runs into Arya. You left me to die. First, I robbed you. It's just interesting that the Hound describes their parting of ways like this because he's not really mad that Arya left him to die, he's mad that she left him to die, slowly on his own, as opposed to putting him out of his misery like he told her to do. And another interesting detail, as the Hound marches up to Arya, a jet of steam hisses from the furnace, reflecting the hot anger between these two. And speaking of steamy, once the Hound leaves, things really heat up between Arya and Gendry. I mean, you look good. Thanks, so do you. Well, I guess a few sparks do show up later when Arya turns back, gives Gendry that smile, and when Gendry teases her by calling her Lady Stark and, as you wish, my lady, calling back that sweet moment between them in season two. I should be calling you my lady. If these two do end up together, this would be another nod to the first episode when Robert told Ned, I have a son, you have a daughter, we'll join our houses. But rather than Joffrey and Sansa, the son and the daughter could end up being Gendry and Arya. Sure, Gendry's still technically a bastard, but there are ways he could be legitimized. But most important to this scene is the new weapon Arya tasks Gendry to make for her. The design that she draws shows a spear in that she wants one side headed with a dragonglass blade, but also so that the spear can detach into two parts. Maybe the other side will contain her Valyrian steel dagger, and she'll have the staff with like two different ways to kill White Walkers. Actually in this week's Westeros Weekly Q&A, we speculated what this weapon could be and what famous historical relics it could be. Based on, but I'm thinking Arya just wants a more adaptable weapon similar to the bow staff that she trained with in Bravos, and not like John's long claw sword that she has to confront and lead the Northerners head on, but rather a weapon that she can be more nimble and on her own with. Later on, Danny and Jorah meet with Samwell Tarley, but Sam also learns that Daenerys executed both his father, Randall Tarley, and his younger brother, Dickon, after they refused to bend the knee. And kudos to John Bradley for the subtle variation in his emotional responses to the death of his father, who was cruel to him, and his response to his brother, whom he always got along with. In the courtyard, Sam notices Bran staring at him. Who oh, is is he out here still? And before Sam even tells him why he's upset, Bran immediately says it's time to tell Jon the truth. He trusts you more than anyone. See, I think Bran knew Sam would learn this upsetting news about his family, and now he's using Sam's emotional state to get him to tell Jon the truth about his identity. Bran knows it's better for Sam to deliver this bad news, since Jon's more likely to trust his longtime friend rather than a vacant tree boy. Also, of course, Bran says that he's waiting for an old friend. We learn later that that old friend is Jamie Lannister. I'm predicting that Sam will be more forgiving of Amy for shoving him out a window, even if the way he says, old friend, sounds a lot like Hannibal Lecter. I'm having an old friend for dinner. Now down in the crypts, we get more parallels to the pilot. Instead of Robert Ned at Leanna's tomb, now it's John and Sam at Ned's tomb. Setting this moment at the feet of Ned Stark's statue is symbolic for a few reasons. First, it's an interesting callback to Ned's final words to John. The next time we see each other, we'll talk about your mother. Now this isn't technically the next time they saw each other. John has been down in the crypts since that moment, but it's nonetheless a proper place for John to learn who his mother really was. It's also interesting to see how both John and Sam are carrying the legacy of Ned Stark in different ways. Sam is a Ned figure in the way that he feels anger over his father and his brother being burned alive by a Targaryen monarch. Meanwhile John is facing the pressure of Ned Stark's lie. The lie to keep his identity a secret and ignore the rightful lineage to protect the overall realm. A lie that John might have to continue to keep. Now the camera stays on John's face as he learns the truth and he struggles and denies But then, when his mother Liana gets mentioned, Liana's statue appears in the background just out of focus. Jon's placement in front of each of these statues reflects his transition throughout the scene, beginning believing that Ned was his father and ending learning that Lyanna was his true Stark connection. And from Ned's grave, we move on to the grave of another Ned, poor Ned Umber, whose namesake was Ned Stark. Earlier, Sansa sent young Ned back to the Umber home of Last Hearth to bring his people back. And knowing Westeros' geography, Last Hearth is the closest castle to the wall where the White Walkers were last spotted. So this was probably going to end in a similar way as Hardhome did. Tormund Giantsbane and Beric Dondarrion, still alive, they run into Dolorous Ed and the few remaining brothers of the Night's Watch from Castle Black. Stand back, he's got blue eyes! I've always had blue eyes! Yeah, Tormund's blue eyes remind us of his blue-eyed beauty whom he wants to make monstrous giant babies with. I have a beauty waiting for me back in Winterfell if I ever get there, yellow hair, blue eyes. Tallest woman you've ever seen, almost as tall as you. And that leads to the creepy reveal of young Ned Umber's body, surrounded by severed limbs all arranged in this spiral pattern. Another nod to the pilot, which opened with the White Walkers staging a similar massacre. And this is the creepiest moment I have seen on Game of Thrones in recent memory. Young Ned's eyes silently opening out of focus behind Torment, before he suddenly comes to life screaming and trying to stab him. So Beric says that this is a message from the Night King, but what? does this message mean? Well, let's zoom and enhance on this crime scene. That's right, it's CSI New Rockstars. I guess the Night King's got this kid's umber. And then do the who. Wow! Invisible sunglasses. So the Night King has used this specific spiral pattern before with the severed horse parts at the fist in season three. And in season six, we learned that this was actually originally a symbol of the Children of the Forest, who created the Night King as a weapon during their war with the First Men. If you look at this, the Night King has actually recreated his origin with Ned Umber here. Ned is impaled through the chest at the center of the spiral, just as the Night King was impaled at the center of a spiral when he was created. Now, this spiral symbol showed up again in season seven in the Caves of Dragonstone, along with another Children of the Forest symbol, the bisected circle, which was the pattern for the massacre in the pilot episode. Perhaps the Night King is saying that he's seeking revenge against the Children of the Forest for cursing him into existence, and he's using their symbols as a warning for that. But I also want to point out that the Night King also did this to a young boy. Now one of the few things we know about the Night King is that Craster used to give him male babies, which the Night King then transformed into the White Walker race. Gilly's baby, young Sam, was promised to the White Walkers, and they even came looking for him, but they never got there. Could the message here be a demand for tribute by the Night King? People of Westeros, give me your firstborn sons, your babies. Beric torches a spiral, creating a literal last hearth on the wall, and some of People said that this fiery spiral resembles the sigil of House Targaryen, a three-headed dragon with its legs and its tail in a similar spiral. I don't know if that was intentional, but what if the baby that the Night King wants most of all is a Targaryen? Remember, back in the moment that Drogon stared at Jon and Danny together? Perhaps the dragon's eyes were actually being seen through by the Night King. Who supposedly does have the ability to warg? Maybe this was the Night King watching as the baby he's always wanted gets one step closer to being his. Like I know, the theory's a bit out there. But either way, this horror with young Ned Umber is meant as a warning that echoes the opening scene of the series and a worst-case fate that could await the main characters. And this brings us to the final scene, the arrival of Jamie Lannister at Winterfell. In the first episode, his arrival in the Winterfell courtyard was more proud, showboaty. Now his face is covered, and his appearance is haggard. He's really just another face in the crowd. No one recognizes him. Except Bran. In a perfect callback to the final shot of the pilot episode, These two are reunited. The camera even rushes in towards Bran's body as the boy crashes back into Jamie's world, a callback to the way Bran crashed into the world in his fall. And now, instead of Bran being terrified as he was pushed, Jamie is the one who looks terrified. And Bran just stares peacefully with a calm look on his face that almost says, the things I'll do for love. With the thing that he does for love maybe being forgiveness for this redeemed sinner. Ending with this image of Bran echoes the opening imagery of the unnamed Northern boy, the passion of young Liana Mormont, and the sacrifice of young Ned Umber. It is the youth who matter the most in this world of Game of Thrones, and it is the youth who will decide what comes next. Do you think Bran should forgive Jamie? and what do you think the Night King's symbol really means? Comment with your thoughts and follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Voss. subscribe to New Rockstars on YouTube, and subscribe to our podcast feed, Westeros Weekly, if you haven't already, to get early access to all of our Game of Thrones coverage. Thanks for joining me, and can someone please wheel brand back inside, he's he's not a tree yet.